we are going, Greg is going to just present straight till about 1145. If you need to leave before that because you have kids or whatever, feel free to do that because we said it would end at 1130. This is so good. I feel like we need to keep pressing. And so Greg is going to present till 1145. He's going to continue to incorporate your questions just as, as, as he's been doing. And one of the things that we'll do, if you have a question, to stand up, say it loudly, and then Greg will repeat that question so that we can get that on the recording that we're going to be posting after this is over, okay? Um, just as a reminder before Greg continues, stop by the virtual bookstore, check out Greg's books. He's written a lot of other stuff on the church and the Holy Spirit and all kinds of, of great things. Also, um, as Greg begins talking some more about justification and works, this gets into a lot of reformational theology. And again, just a reminder um, that we're taking a reformation trip this summer, Four Oaks is, and we still have a few spots available, and that's a great opportunity to see sort of reformational history and theology sort of up close. It's gonna be a teaching tour, so we'll see some historical sites, but we're also gonna be doing some teaching um, along some of these themes, okay? So if you're interested in that, come grab me after this is over. I'll be glad to give you more information, but Greg, please continue to lead us. We're so Thanks. enjoying this. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks. Romans 1, 16 to 17. Salvation, righteousness, and faith. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul writes, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So first point here, the Roman Catholic theological system, this worldview, this cultural orientation, views salvation as a synergistic, interesting word, I'll explain it, lifelong process. Synergistic means a collaborative or cooperative activity, right? So... From the Roman Catholic point of view, God's grace is provided through the sacraments. This grace that is infused into the Catholic faithful through the sacraments transforms their nature so that cooperating with this grace of God, they may engage in good works and ultimately, through the grace of God, merit eternal life at the end of their existence, the end of their life. So this is a synergistic or collaborative, cooperative activity. God providing his grace, the Catholic faithful collaborating with that grace and working that out such that there is this synergy, which is a lifelong process, right? It begins with baptism, cleansing from original sin, being born again, being incorporated into Christ and the church, through confirmation, becoming, someone just said, a soldier of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, fully incorporated into the Catholic Church, through the Eucharist, receiving, again, weekly, or for some people, daily grace through the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It's a lifelong synergistic process. And as I've just said, righteousness is, uh, is this grace that is infused through the sacraments, right? So 
this, this grace comes through these elements of nature, the nature-grace interdependence. This grace comes through these sacraments and becomes transformative. The Catholic faith will become more and more righteous as that grace is infused. But of course, Scripture emphasizes, this passage emphasizes, all of this is to be appropriated by faith. Well, in the Roman Catholic worldview, faith is always primarily the faith of the Catholic Church as expressed through the sacraments. Faith primarily belongs to the Catholic Church, which is given to the Catholic faithful, right? So that they then secondarily or derivatively believe. An example here, in the case of infants, salvation begins with the infusion of grace through the sacrament of baptism, but that 30-day-old girl, she can't uh, have faith in God's work through the sacrament, so that's okay because it's the Catholic Church who has the faith for her. It's primarily the faith of the Catholic Church. Even if, where's Melissa? Even if Melissa, right, were to uh, convert to a Roman Catholicism, right, and she would be uh, baptized as a Roman Catholic, right, how would she appropriate by faith this work of God through the sacraments? It would not primarily be her faith. It would still be primarily the faith of the Catholic Church, right, which is for her, and then secondarily is her own personal faith. So, it's very hard for us as evangelicals to understand the connections, the, the centrality of the church, its sacraments, its faith. But this is the idea of Romans 1, 16 to 17, salvation, righteousness, and faith. Verses 118 through 320, sin and its devastating effects. Romans 1:18 talks about ungodliness and unrighteousness. Chapter 2, verse 5, talks about storing up wrath. Chapter 2, verse 12, talks about those perishing without the law and sinning without, under the law. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 9 to 11, uh, Paul writes, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Chapter 3, verse 20, By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. These chapters emphasize over and over and over again the sinful reality, the sinful state, the sinful activities, the sinful words, the sinful attitudes that characterize all human beings fallen into sin. I'm going to guess that when Paul was preaching on this and he kept harping on the sin, 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 you go, enough is enough. Right, but Paul drives Paul and Paul drive home this point we are sinful through and through. So, what's the Roman Catholic theological system on here? What's the, what's the worldview? We begin with the image of God in Adam and Eve. According to Roman Catholic theology, the image of God is primary, has primarily to do with our intellect, our reason, and our free will. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? It means that we have a mind, we are able to think, we are to reason, we're characterized by our rationality, and we have a free will that can say yes or it can say no. 
also within the Roman Catholic view of the fall and sin, the Catholic system emphasizes a latent, uh, a, a, a hidden disturbance between Adam and Eve's higher nature, which has to do with their rationality and their reasoning, and their lower nature, their feelings, their passions, their bodily desires. I've got this all diagrammed for you here. Still, the harmony between these two aspects was maintained by the supernatural gift of original righteousness. So God created Adam and Eve, this higher capacity, reason, or rationality, then our pa their passions, their bodily desires, their reason or their rationality ruled over these lower aspects, their passions and bodily desires. How did these higher rule over the lower? By means of God's gift, supernatural gift of original righteousness. So there was this latent possibility of disturbance, but this system, right, this reality of higher ruling over the lower is maintained by this supernatural gift of original righteousness. What happens in the fall then? Adam and Eve lost this gift of original righteousness, resulting in the loss of the harmony between those three aspects. What happens in the fall? Adam and Eve's passions and bodily desires begin to rule over their reason and their rationality. Why? Because they've lost this supernatural gift of original righteousness. So Adam and Eve, within them, they become topsy-turvy. And so they end up with a broken relationship with God, a broken relationship between themselves, a broken relationship with creation. Just read Genesis 3, find out what happens to them. This is the Roman Catholic understanding of the image of God in the impact of, fall, of the fall. So, this is sin and its consequences. Within the Roman Catholic Church, an original sin consists of this guilt that we get from Adam as well as this corrupt, topsy-turvy nature. We're born into the, we're conceived and we're born into this world with our passions and bodily desires ruling over our reason, our rationality because we've lost the gift of original righteousness. And the Catholic Church divides sin into mortal sins and venial sins. Mortal sins are premeditated sins. They're sins that one commits with full awareness of the sinfulness of the actions, full consent on the part of those committing these mortal sins, and these sins are done without any reference whatsoever to God and His will. So these are not just necessarily the terrible ten and the dirty dozen, right? Um, right? These can be other kinds of sins, but they're premeditated, they're done with full consent, they're done with full awareness of the sinfulness of these actions, and they're done without any reference whatsoever to God. What happens with mortal sin is that the Catholic faithful lose the grace of God. Even though they've been baptized, confirmed, if they've gone through the Eucharist, received grace and all like that, because of mortal sin, they lose the grace of God. And should they die in that state of mortal sin, their soul would go immediately into hell. Which then we'll talk about the need for a sacrament to restore them to the grace of God. That's coming in a little bit. So mortal sins, right, are these premeditated, full consent, full awareness, done without any reference to God. 
And then there are venial sins. Any sin that does not mount up to these descriptors of what a mortal sin is, that's a venial sin. Catholics do not have to go to confession. We'll talk about this in a few minutes in order to deal with venial sins. So we've got this distinction. Let's compare this with our evangelical worldview. I'm concerned about the Catholic emphasis or reduction of the image of God to reason and free will. I think this is overly reductionistic. And I'm thankful for evangelical theology moving away from anything like that. I take a very holistic view of what is the image of God. I'm looking at you. You guys are the image of God. Not just your rationality, not just your reasoning, not just your free will. You are image bearers. Second, the original state of Adam and Eve is including a latent disharmony. I don't read scripture like that. Evangelical biblical scholars and theologians don't detect any kind of latent uh, disturbance or disharmony within Adam and Eve. It would be hard for us to embrace after reading Genesis 1.31, and God looked and God assessed the created world as very good. I, I don't think a latent disharmony would fit in that descriptor. The fall is a reversal due to the loss of original righteousness, so uh, evangelicals don't believe that there was this super-added gift, this supernatural gift of original righteousness to maintain those three aspects of Adam and Eve in check. We, we don't follow that. But we do agree with Roman Catholicism and its view of sin. Sin is seriously, seriously destructive, but most evangelicals, particularly of the Reformed faith, say that's not enough. The even common evangelical view, particularly among Reformed evangelicals, sin is devastatingly destructive. There is a I do not want to downplay the Roman Catholic view of the seriousness of sin. It is deadly serious, according to Roman Catholic theology. According to the common reform view of sin, that's not an adequate view of sin. Sin is devastatingly destructive. It impacts every aspect of human nature such that we cannot make any move toward God. Grace, justification, and faith in uh, Romans 3, 21 to 5, 11. Let me just say here, Paul in these passages emphasizes the idea of justification, not guilty but righteous instead, a justification that is appropriated by faith and faith alone with no admixture of good works. It's by faith. This justification then is God looks at us fallen human beings, and because of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, he says, you are forgiven, you are not guilty, 100% not guilty. And he, he counts the righteousness of his son as belonging to us, right? He counts us as righteous, not because of any righteousness within ourselves, not because of any righteous deeds that we might engage in, but because God credits the righteousness of his son to our account. So my friend Ken over here, right at the end of this uh, talk, you're going to credit $1,000 to my account. Thank you very much, right? I didn't earn that at all, did I, right? And, and, and this is his $1,000, which now becomes mine, right? 
in a similar kind of way, right? God credits the righteousness of his son to my account, to your account. He declares us not guilty, but righteous instead. What is justification according to Roman Catholic theology? The Roman Catholic view, justification fuses together, meshes together forgiveness of sins, sanctification, and regeneration, all of which comes through the sacraments of the Catholic Church. In the words of the Council of Trent, justification is not only the remission or forgiveness of sins, but the sanctification of the inner person and the renewal of the inner person. Not only the remission of sins, justification is not only forgiveness, but it's also the sanctification and renewal of the inner person. Forgiveness, sanctification, regeneration, all fused into one. This became the major doctrinal disagreement among, between Catholics and Protestants at the time of the Reformation, and it continues to be a very important dividing point today. The evangelical view, as I've been describing, justification is a forensic declaration. God the judge bangs down the gavel, not guilty but righteous instead, through the imputation, through the accrediting of Christ's righteousness to our account. So our righteousness does not belong first and foremost to us. It's the righteousness of another. In Martin Luther's words, it's an alien righteousness. It's the righteousness of another. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ which is credited to our account. That's what justification is all about. Where do good works and merit play into our two systems, our two worldviews? The Catholic view, the infusion of grace through the sacraments changes the nature, the essence, the character of the Catholic faithful so that the Catholic faithful, having received this grace of God, are enabled to, they're enabled to engage in good works so as to merit or earn eternal life. Let's just pick, just, I want to underscore this point. I am not at all saying that the Catholic system, the Roman Catholic system, is works-based primarily. It is not. All of this is grace, right? This is grace infused into them. Oh, it's a different concept of grace, but it is a grace-filled system. The Roman Catholic worldview is grace-filled. So we would misunderstand Roman Catholicism. We used to say, well, my Catholic friends are just trying to earn their salvation by good works. That's not true. It's a grace-filled system. This grace, though, is infused into them, changes their characters. As they engage in good works, they merit eternal life. What are the, what's the evangelical view? Good works are both the fruit of justification and our regeneration and our sanctification. Good works are both the fruit of God saving us and the, ne and the necessary manifestation of salvation. It's the fruit of a life that is now changed by God, that is thankful for God's work in our life, and this, these good works will necessarily manifest themselves uh, in the lives of genuine believers. Will believers remain believers throughout their entire life? This has to do with perseverance and assurance. Perseverance is the view that God holds his faithful in Christ 
throughout their entirety of their days all the way to the end. Perseverance is a divine work by which God holds us in Christ by his power operating through our faith, ready, and his salvation then operates in our life from the moment of our conversion all the way to the end. So God preserves us. Assurance then is our subjective confidence based on God's persevering work in our life. So, uh, assurance is the subjective confidence that we are privileged to have that we belong to Jesus Christ and that we will belong to him forever. The Roman Catholic view denies perseverance and assurance. It denies perseverance and assurance, right? Because Melissa, though she is availing herself of the sacraments of the Catholic Church, though grace is being infused into her, into her life, and she's collaborating with that grace such that she's engaging in good works, at any moment, Melissa could say, nuts to this, fall away from the faith, and would not persevere. So she cannot, a Roman Catholic cannot, according to official Catholic doctrine, cannot possess the assurance of salvation. It would be presumptuous, and Melissa cannot know that even at the very end of her life, she might apostatize, fall away from the faith, commit a mortal sin, and die without Christ. The evangelical view, from a Reformed theological perspective, we embrace perseverance, God's work holding us in Christ, and the assurance of salvation. On the basis of God's work, we can be assured that we belong to Christ and Christ forever. This is not license for us to sin and not follow the Lord, but it is a reality for us as genuine believers. Finally, under the whole idea of salvation here, purgatory. According to the Roman Catholic view, purgatory is, a, is a, the experience of temporary cleansing or purgation, purging. You hear purgatory, purging, uh, purgation, uh, cleansing. A temporary purging or purgation for full cleansing from sin. So, um, uh, Ken, uh, through the sacraments of the Catholic Church, the, inf the grace of God is in being infused in his life, and, and he's walking with the Lord, but at the end of his life, he's not, uh, he is not perfect. He is not fully pure because of venial sins, because of forgiven uh, mortal sins. So there's still this stain this mark on his soul. He's not fully pure. He dies in the friendship and grace of God, but he's not fully purified. So when he dies, his soul can't go immediately to heaven. It doesn't go to hell, but it goes to purgatory where over the course of how many years are we going to give you? 5,000 years, right? Or 10,000? You know, right? Well, you don't know, right? 10,000 years, 5,000 years, 500 years. We don't know, but the, you would ex he was, his soul would experience a time of purgation of purging so that he would one day be perfectly purified and then his soul goes immediately into heaven Amen. you're welcome yes yes <laughs> we'll pray for you <laughs> the evangelical view there's no need for for purgation there's no need for purgatory because our standing before god has been determined not guilty 
but righteous instead. We're fully righteous through the righteousness of Christ credited to our account. So we don't need purgatory. So again, very different system. Finally then, baptism and the sacraments. And here we come back to this nature-grace interdependence and identification with Christ. This is the Christ-church interconnection. What should we say then, Paul writes in, Galatians, in, in Romans 6, 1-5, what should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Union with Christ, what is true of Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, what's true of him because of our being united with him is true of us also. Looking at the Roman Catholic view, what's the notion of a sacrament? This interesting Latin expression, ex opere operato, and then this nature-grace interdependence. Um, the Roman Catholic Church has seven sacraments, seven sacraments. Baptism, which we've portrayed here, is the initiatory, it's the first sacrament that an infant will undergo, or uh, in, some, in an adult case, right, an adult would undergo baptism. And, and this is the sacrament by which original sin is removed, the person becomes born again, is regenerated, and it becomes incorporated into Christ and his church. Baptism, according to the Catholic Church, is necessary for salvation. Baptism is necessary for salvation, as are the other um, sacraments, uh, according to one's uh, st status in life. So baptism is the initiatory sacrament. If you would ever go into a Roman Catholic Church, when you cross the threshold, you leave the world, you come into the church, what's the very first object that you encounter it's the baptismal font because entrance into christ entrance into the church is through baptism the second one which we've also portrayed confirmation right this is uh, the full outpouring of the holy spirit so that the ones who are confirmed are now soldiers of christ they're on mission for christ and his church they're fully incorporated into the membership of the catholic church the Eucharist, which we have also portrayed here, uh, the Eucharist is, uh, is that which uh, the Catholic faithful can take on a weekly basis, even a daily basis. The requirement is that the Catholic faithful take the Eucharist, participate in the sacrament at minimum once a year. So we'll come back to this, but the Eucharist, the view is that the bread and the wine are transubstantiated, they are changed into the body and blood of Jesus Christ, such that the once and for all sacrifice of Christ on the cross at Calvary becomes represented 
at the Mass at 5 o'clock this evening such that the uh, crucified body and blood of Jesus Christ are then um, uh, sacramentally present in the Eucharist and the Catholic faithful take those. Penance is the sacrament, it's also called reconciliation. You may be familiar with it as a sacrament of confession. So when uh, Ken uh, and Melissa commit a mortal sin, right, they lose the grace of God, and so that grace must be restored. So they participate in the sacrament of penance. They confess their sins orally to a priest who absolves them of their sin, gives them penitential acts. They should pray five Hail Marys. They should pray five Our Fathers. They should help the poor. They should give to the poor, whatever the appropriate case is. And by means of this sacrament of penance, they are once again restored through the grace of God to this process of being saved. Anointing the sick is the sacrament for those who are undergoing major surgery, who are very weak and debilitated by COVID, who are on the verge of their death. This is grace that is infused into those who are seriously sick, who are on the way towards death to help them transition from this life into the next life. Matrimony is for a Catholic man and a Catholic woman who covenant together to be joined in marriage, covenanted together to become married, right? And so this sacrament is the gift of grace to help this man and this woman to begin their new life in a covenant relationship. For those men who desire to serve Christ in his church, there is a sacrament of holy orders such that through the infusion of the grace of God, their very essence or nature is changed such that they act in the person of Jesus Christ when they uh, administer the sacraments. They are the ones who preach the gospel, who um, preach the homilies or sermons in the mass, they are the ones who teach and sanctify and lead the church. Seven sacraments. These sacraments are valid. They're effective simply by the work worked. Ex opere operato. Literally by the work worked. When that priest takes consecrated water and baptizes that 30-day-old girl, that act of baptism uh, removes, cleanses this little girl from her original sin, causes her to be born again, incorporates her into Christ in the Catholic Church. But wait a second. What if that priest, a half an hour earlier, had embezzled $25,000 from the, from the church? What if that Catholic priest, two days earlier, had engaged in homosexual activity or sexually abused someone? Doesn't that render the sacrament ineffective or invalid? No, it does not. No matter what the state of the priest is as he is celebrating baptism, his sin cannot uh, be an obstacle to the infusion of the grace of God into that 30-day-old uh, girl. She is cleansed of her sin, she's born again, and she's incorporated into Christ and his church. You may have been reading about the thing that happened in Arizona with the priest, instead of saying, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He said, we, 
all of his baptisms were rendered invalid because he did not say the right thing. He cannot say, we baptize you. He has to say, I baptize you because he and he alone is the one who has received this, these holy orders. He and he alone acts in the person of Jesus Christ. It is Christ is the one who's doing the baptism. So this is very interesting, recent development of last week. The sacraments vividly portray this principle of the nature-grace interdependence. These elements of nature are capable of receiving and transmitting the grace of God so that when the faithful are baptized, when they're confirmed, when they participate in the Eucharist, when they go to the sacrament of penance, right, the grace of God is infused, communicated through these consecrated elements of nature into their life. Identification with Christ and the Christ church communication. Again, the church views itself, the Roman Catholic Church views itself as the continuation, the ongoing reality of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It's the prolongation, the continuation of Christ's incarnation. The implication of this, the Roman Catholic Church self-identifies as the only church of Jesus Christ. The Roman Catholic Church and the Roman Catholic Church alone is the church of Jesus Christ. It, in, it alone, as the continuation of the incarnation, is the whole Christ, deity, humanity, and body, which means that Four Oaks is not a church. Four Oaks is an ecclesial community but it is not a church. There's only one church of Jesus Christ, and Four Oaks is not it. So we as evangelicals gather not in churches, but in ecclesial communities. Pastor Paul is not the pastor of a church. He's the pastor of an ecclesial community. There's one and only one church, which is the Roman Catholic Church. We compare this with evangelicalism. We have two sacraments or ordinances, not seven, so baptism would be a public profession of our faith as we embrace salvation through Jesus Christ, right? So it's a beautiful portrayal of uh, identification with the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and so forth. And the Lord's Supper, you do this weekly, monthly, Paul, how often? Weekly, so weekly celebration of the gospel of Christ's body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. We have two rather than seven. And then to separate ourselves from the Roman Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation, um, Luther, Zwingli, Calvin insisted on two or three marks of a true evangelical church. We preach the word of God. So currently, Pastor Paul right, is preaching through the letter, Paul's letter to the Romans. This is a mark of our true evangelical church. And then we celebrate baptism and the Lord's Supper. These and only these two um, ordinances. A third uh, mark of a true church added in by some Protestants is church discipline. And of course, we believe that Four Oaks is an evangelical church. It's not a mere ecclesial community. In the words of Martin Luther in the Augsburg Confession, unto the true unity of the church, it is sufficient to agree concerning the doctrine of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments. 
Thus, evangelicalism and Roman Catholicism have these many differences pulled out from, discussed along with Paul's letter to the Romans. So how do we share the good news, the gospel with Roman Catholics? Just four brief points, and then we have a little time for Q&A. Uh, we should approach our Roman Catholic friends and family members, neighbors, colleagues at work, viewing, their, viewing Roman Catholicism as a worldview. It's, it's a way of being and living in the world. It's a culture that influences everything they are and everything they do. Similar to us as evangelicals, but now from a Roman Catholic view. If we take this piecemeal approach, remember the wall, if we can just pick out the brick of purgatory or pick out the brick of Mary or pick out the, the brick of the papacy, the whole thing falls down, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. So we view Roman Catholicism as a worldview. And then we look at the gospel, we share the gospel as a message of radical intervention of divine grace not infused into us, but from the outside. Not infusion, but as God's grace radically intervening into our life to save us from outside of ourselves. The gospel is outside of ourselves. The righteousness that we have through Christ is a righteousness of another. It's a righteousness of Christ that is credited to our account. Again, a very different worldview. We look at the gospel as a message that comes from the outside and rescues us. Nora and I, when we were in Rome, loved to invite our Catholic neighbors into what we called reading groups of the gospel. That is, on a weekly basis, we would get together with three, four, five uh, Catholic couples and others, uh, and we would um, get out the calendar of the Catholic Church. Uh, there's, there's an actual book that you can get. So what we're here on Saturday, we would uh, look at uh, this calendar for readings of the gospel for the Mass that was coming up tomorrow on Sunday. And so there would be an indication at all Masses all around the world, right? The next day, Sunday at the Mass, the priest, there would be an Old Testament reading, a New Testament reading, and there would be a reading of one of the four Gospels. Let's just say for the sake of argument, it's Luke 19, 1 to 10, the story of Zacchaeus, that wee little man who climbed up a sycamore tree, the Lord he wanted to see, right? So what we would do, we would read that text, and then we would reread that text. And then we taught them a very simple Bible study method. Observation, interpretation, prayer. Observation. Who are the people in this story? Zacchaeus. What is the Bible? What does this narrative tell us about? He's, he's, he's small. He's a tax collector. Anyone know what a tax collector is like? Is It's kind of like a mafioso. Yeah, yeah that, that's kind of close. Remember, we're in Rome, right? Rome, Italy. Right? So, so that's pretty close, right? So, so talk about Zacchaeus. What is he? Who is he? What does he do? What's a tax collector? What is this thing about climbing up a sycamore tree and all? Who else is in this story? Jesus. Okay. What is Jesus? Who is Jesus? What does he do? Anything else? Nope. 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 Okay, come on. Well, there's another figure here. Oh, the crowd. What does the crowd do? It grumbles. Why? Because Jesus is going to the home of a tax collector, a sinner. Okay. Let's interpret this. So, so what's the big picture here? 
right? And, and Luke 19.10 spells it out, right? So the, the Son of God, right, has come to save, seek and save that which is lost. Zacchaeus is a son of Abraham, right? And, and so Jesus is going to his house. He must go to his house so that this son of Abraham might uh, embrace eternal life. And then the son comes and becomes incarnate and seeks out and saves that which is lost. Application then, so how is Jesus saving you as a lost person? How is Jesus rescuing you from your lostness? Anyone want to pray then? We'll ask. No one, right? No one wants to pray. Or if they've got a little courage, they go, thank you, God. That's great. Or I would just pray, thank you, Jesus, for coming to seek and save that which is lost. End of the Bible study. Come back next week. What's the reading for the Mass on Sunday? That would become our text. Why did we do this? Exposure to the Word of God, specifically the Gospel, about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Our Catholic participants needed to know who Jesus is and what he's done for them. Week in, week out, month in, month out, and then we would come one day and you'd say, you'd see, the light must have gone on in their eyes. We, we could see it, right? It, exposure to the gospel over a long period of time based on the gospel reading for the Sunday to come. And if they would come back then on a Saturday and say, from, from the Mass last Sunday, you know, our priest said this about that gospel reading, but that's different than what you say. And I go, well, wait a second. Your priest said what? This, okay. What did we discuss? What did the Bible say as we studied it? Oh, yeah. It wasn't pitching the Catholic Church against us Protestants. It was, what does the Bible say? The authoritative word of God, and we believe faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Expose them to the gospel. And then clarify the gospel. A question that I would ask before inviting a Catholic friend, Bible study participant, colleague, would be this one. Have you ceased to rely on your own efforts to earn God's love and merit his favor? Have you ceased to rely on your own efforts to earn God's love and merit his favor? If the answer is, well, you know, since we started this Bible study, I've been going to Mass a lot more regularly. Nope. Or I've been really attentive to pay attention to the poor in our neighborhood. I'm trying to help them out. Nope. We're not ready yet. Faith plus works cancels faith. Faith plus works cancels faith. They're not ready then. Could I, could Nora press them? Just pray this prayer and accept Jesus into your life. 95, 98% of them would say, of course I'll pray. It wouldn't be real. It wouldn't be genuine. This question is a diagnostic question. Have they abandoned whatever they think that they can do? And are they, going, are they ready to repent and place their faith in Jesus and Jesus alone? Roman Catholics, Protestants, Evangelicals, Muslims, Buddhists, Taoists, Confucianists, agnostics, atheists, we all need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Always focus on the good news. Thank you.
Um, guys, let me say a couple of things because there's been quite a few questions that have rolled in. One of the things that um, is going to happen this week is Greg is going to be um, my guest on the pastoral devotionals um, all coming up this week, and we're going to incorporate some of these questions in. We're going to record these while he and Nora are are in town, and so. But I am going to toss out a, just a couple of questions, um, sure. Greg, that I think are pretty pertinent. You talked about how Roman Catholics view evangelical churches. We're not a church. We're ecclesiastical community. How should we view the Roman Catholic Church, uh, particularly in light of what Paul says in Galatians 1, that he who preaches another gospel than what you've heard from me, from him be anathema? How should we think about this? So I'm going to reflect on uh, my conversation with Chris before each individual Catholic parish should be assessed. There is such a wide spectrum, and Chris was describing a Catholic parish in Rhode Island, right, that, that would have what we would call maybe like an evangelical a priest, right? So if you're, and Nora and I befriended several evangelical-like priests who communicated the gospel, who would say, as they were inviting people to come forward to the Eucharist, if you take this sacrament without faith in Jesus Christ, you might as well be eating a banana. They could explain justification better than I just did. So in those cases, we would say, here is an enclave within the big tent Catholic church where we find a faith that is very similar to ours. Uh, and so I, my approach has always been, I would prefer to investigate, to assess, evaluate a, an individual parish because there's that, there's that much uh, diversity. So following up on that, you're obviously saying, yes, there are born-again Christians yep. in the Catholic Church. Yep. How would those who are ceasing from their efforts yep. to abandoning their efforts as you talk here, how would they think about these other doctrines which seem so very clearly to mitigate against that? Um, my guess is, as they focus on Bible studies, and Chris was talking about Bible studies in the Catholic parish, as they do that, one result could be um, seeing the uh, lack of biblical foundation of many of the things that we've talked about and then moving away from that. Perhaps still staying in their Catholic parish for evangelistic and missionary purposes, they see it as their mission field, or eventually even leaving it because there's just too much disconnect. Probably some of you, many of you, have been in that situation where it just got to be, there's just, there's too much disconnect, I can't stay in it. Okay. Um, what, I know uh, a, a very common question a lot of folks here have, let's say that they have a family member, um, someone who has left the evangelical faith has come into the Roman Catholic Church, but they're fairly certain of their, you know, that this person understands salvation, justification. What should their posture be to that friend, to that family member? Yeah, great question. So I, I would ask a couple of questions. And in my 40 questions book, I have a question, why do our evangelical neighbors and friends 
uh, and family members leave their evangelical churches and join the Roman Catholic Church. So I, I would, uh, would ask questions like, what did you find, what do you find attractive about the Roman Catholic Church? The answer will probably be something like the mystery and transcendence of the mass, the unity that is found in the Roman Catholic Church. No matter where you go in the world, every mass is going to be the same. The only thing that differs is the languages. The authority that's found in the Catholic Church Scripture, tradition, the magisterium, the magisterium, the Pope, the, the, the teachers of the church proclaim the official interpretation of the Bible, the historical rootedness that the Catholic church has. Perhaps in their evangelical church, they just feel like they were floating out of, in the midair and they want roots. I would ask those kinds of questions. And then, for example, if they say, well, you know, there's, that, that you, that we can find unity in the Catholic church. Well, my pushback would be, but you know, Four Oaks, your view of Four Oaks, you don't even consider it to be a church. You, don't, you just consider it to be an ecclesial community. How is that going to foster unity between the Catholic Church and other churches? They're not even other churches. So perhaps uh, exposing uh, maybe the weaknesses of some of the reasons that they, they, they leave, I, I would ask them to get involved in a Bible study with you. Or, or some uh, Bible study, because unless it's like a, a situation where Chris had where there's not Bible studies, they, they need to be weekly exposed and counter the Word of God, so invite them to have Bible studies with you. And they're also going to need uh, fellowship, community, because some of my evangelical friends who have become part of the Catholic Church, one of the great things they lack is there's no sense of community. So they're, they're, they're going to need that as well. So that would be some of my suggestions. If someone here is from a Roman Catholic background, this is a real practical question. Yeah. Let's say, and this is a question that arose, they maybe were baptized um, in the Roman Catholic Church or maybe even confirmed. Yeah. Why should they or should they even be think about, think about being re-baptized again when they come into an evangelical or Protestant church. And by the way, I think that discussion also um, folds into maybe even those who are here who were baptized as infants in an evangelical church. Why should they be thinking about baptism? I just snuck that one in, okay. Does, your, does uh, Four Oaks have a policy on this? Um, we don't require believers' baptisms to join the church, but we strongly recommend it. and. If somebody has a, a covenantal conviction about why their baptism um, as an infant was efficacious, why you know, they have a strong view of the theology of the covenant, um, we don't want them to violate their conscience. But typically, it's, it's more like, I was baptized as an infant. I don't know why. I don't know what that was about. I'm just, you know, that sort of thing. So, yes. That's my answer. <laughs> Told you. All right. No. <laughs> I, I'm no authority here, right? He's the pastor. You've got elders. That's your policy at this church. Abide by that policy. I support it. Right. Okay. Some other questions from you. Stand up and then we'll repeat those. Yes, William. Do you consider Roman Catholics Christians? 
Just like we talked about individual parishes, I'm going to talk about individual Catholics. Have they embraced the good news of Jesus Christ, repented of their sins, believed in Jesus Christ, and ceased to rely on anything that they could do to merit and earn God's love and favor? If they've embraced the good news, that would be true of a Catholic, a Buddhist, a Sikh, a Taoist, an agnostic. That's the requirement. Yeah. So each individual case would be assessed. It's, it's pretty hard to say, paint with such broad strokes. We, we don't want the Roman Catholic Church to paint with such broad strokes and say Four Oaks is an ecclesial community. I, I understand why the church says that, right? But, but that's it's kind of hard for us to swallow, right? So again, painting with broad brush, and, and I have colleagues, and there are many theologians who would say, yeah, all Catholics are non-Christians. I just... We, we, we are in a position to think about individual parishes and individual Catholics. And I would just say, think like that, do that. Yes. David, yeah. Cultural identity as yeah, a Roman cultural Catholic. identity. It will take a lifetime for, let me just use an Italian Catholic who was clearly not a follower of Jesus, wasn't even really a practicing Catholic, was just a cultural Catholic, maybe had been baptized as a Catholic, and maybe married in the Catholic Church. If Nora leads that woman to Christ, it will take a lifetime for that woman to um, understand that her Catholicism was a cultural reality rather than a biblically rooted and theologically robust uh, worldview. It takes a lifetime. Because of the former state church relationship, which is, you know, permeates so much of the world, this is just something that most people are saddled with, that to be an Italian is to be a Catholic, and it takes a lifetime to change that. This is where discipleship comes in, to understand that there are cultural matters that you view as a result of being an Italian Catholic that are not biblical or not theologically sound. It takes a whole lifetime. And you can imagine that me and Nora, right, becoming missionaries, trying to understand uh, a Roman Catholic cultural view and an Italian cultural view and an Italian Catholic cultural view. That, that's a lot of effort on our part. Trish.
How are, is it, are the Catholic elements, there's the question, it seems sort of this mystical, Gnostic sort of magical element to it. Yeah. So if by Gnosticism you mean there's an elite group that has secret knowledge that's not known by anybody, you could say in a, some way this notion of tradition is is something, there's some Gnostic tinge to it. But I would clarify that uh, because at certain points, that tradition is announced publicly. Immaculate Conception of Mary, Bodily Assumption of Mary. So though it may have been reserved for an elite group of bishops, it is proclaimed publicly, so it's then the possession of all the Catholic faithful. So that would be a difference there. If we talk about are these if, if, would Gnosticism appeal, would, would the sacraments be somehow Gnostically oriented? I think just the opposite. They're tangible, concrete, physical elements. Gnosticism would deny that they could have any impact on our lives. Yeah. Right. One last question right over here, because we want to be kind to our child care workers. Go for it. Yeah, and this is why I emphasize reading groups of the gospel. I don't want to pit evangelical against Catholic. I don't want to pit anything such that, well, my priest says, you say. I don't want, he said, he said, or he said, she said, or she said, she said. I don't want that. It's, again, here's one of our foundational principles of Protestantism. The Bible is our ultimate authority. We believe that it's true in everything that it affirms. It's sufficient for salvation. It's clear. It's powerful in terms of transforming our lives. So get Catholics and Buddhists and Taoists and Sikhs in the Bible over and over and over again. It may have been 50 years ago that there was a quick uh, acknowledgement and change. I think given our cultural context, it just takes weeks, months, maybe years. Be patient constantly bring them back to the good news of the Word of God. All right, that's a great word. Guys, let's thank Greg one more time for being here with us. Thanks. Thank you.